Hello, my name is Adrian Goldberg and welcome to the Byline Times podcast. The Byline Times is what the papers don't say, what radio doesn't report and what telly doesn't tell you. This time, the 15-minute city, a foresighted idea to make cities more livable, dating back more than a century, but which has now attracted a raft of conspiracy theories brought to you by climate deniers, anti-vaxxers and possibly worse. We'll be hearing from Byline Times writer Otto English, aka Andrew Scott, who's done a deep dive into the conspiracy theories. Before we do, just a reminder that the Byline Times podcast is funded by subscriptions to the Byline Times. That's our wonderful monthly newspaper, which features the best of our online stories and exclusive content that you can't read anywhere else. Find out how to subscribe over at our news-breaking website bylinetimes.com. And if you have already subscribed, thank you. Now, the idea of 15-minute cities has provoked well-publicised protests in cities like Oxford, where the local council has imposed traffic-free routes known as low-traffic neighbourhoods, which are increasingly common across the country and undoubtedly controversial. But are LTNs really a sign that your freedom is at risk? Well, yes, according not just to regular conspiracy theorists, but to Conservative MP Nick Fletcher. Will the leader please set aside some time in this House for a debate on the international socialist concept of so-called 15-minute cities and 20-minute neighbourhoods? Ultra-low emission zones in their present form do untold economic damage to any city. However, the second step after these zones will take away personal freedoms as well. Sheffield is already on this journey, and I do not want Doncaster, which is also a Labour-run socialist council, to do the same. Low emission zones cost the taxpayer money, simple as. However, 15-minute cities will cost us our personal freedom, and that cannot be right. That was Conservative MP Nick Fletcher in the House of Commons recently. Let's bring in Otto English then. Uh, Otto, Andrew, how are you doing? You're right. I'm very well. How are you, Adrian? Good, good. Uh, I want to talk about low traffic neighbourhoods and the development of this strange conspiracy theory. It may even be fairer to say conspiracy theories around 15 minute cities, but there is a bit of a history to this idea and, if you like, a, a legitimate idea behind this. Yes, well, of course, many of our great European cities, in fact, many of the great cities in the world, were built long before the invention of the automobile and long before the Industrial Revolution. So a lot of these cities, including London, you know, even the city of London with its big glistening tower blocks and things, have sort of medieval layouts. So from well over 100 years ago, you had writers, authors and city planners trying to map out better designed cities that worked for individuals because I mean many of those medieval cities had sort of sprung up organically you know from around the precincts of a cathedral or a castle into a sprawling sort of poorly laid out streets. Paris of course was famously laid out in a sort of grid pattern. New York was gridded and all of those kinds of things. And in Britain from the late 19th century onwards you had all sorts of people trying to come up with what became known as garden cities in the 1920s and 30s. And in the post-war era, Newtowns. In fact, I grew up right on the edge of Harlow Newtown in Essex, about 30 miles out of Liverpool Street. Harlow has many flaws, but it was beautifully planned. They had different areas for people to live. They had parkland that was easily accessible. 
They had bicycle lanes that they put in in the late 1940s, separate to roads. They gridded the roads. They had shopping centres. They had local shopping centres. And that essentially is the idea of a 15-minute city. Everything is within 15 minutes of a resident. So that's your shops, your entertainment facilities, Parkland, your dentist, your doctor. Everything you should need should be easily accessible and preferably a walk. You live in Birmingham, I live in London. Many of us live in something akin to that already. Here, where I live in South East London, I would say I live in a five or ten minute city. All the shops, all the things that I need, including my children's school, are within very easy access of me. And with the introduction of all sorts of traffic calming measures in London over the years that I've lived here, from red routes to the congestion charge to the Ulez zone. People like myself, and I have a car, we have adapted. We have reduced our use of our car, which is a good thing because we don't have to spend so much money on petrol. We have increased our activity by walking or by getting on public transport, and it's made the cities less congested and work for us. Before we start addressing the conspiracy theories, I think about quibbles as well as potential advantages. So on the quibble side, I've seen it pointed out, ironically, on the website of the World Economic Forum, who are sometimes accused of being the architects of the 15-minute city as some kind of prison. But I've seen a critical article by a couple of academics saying that, for example, a world-class symphony orchestra of which the city that I live in Birmingham has one or a major university is not going to be available in every 15-minute pocket of the city or a major sporting venue or the, the kind of arena that can host major gigs so Even if you accept the broad premise that a 15-minute city can be a progressive idea and good for citizens, there will be some things for which a city centre or some other part of the town, unless you're lucky to live where everything is situated, will have to be based. So it's an ideal, isn't it? Yeah, but also I think we take for granted the fact that nobody's going to have, you know, the Royal Albert Hall. You can't build a Royal Albert Hall within five minutes of everybody. I mean, I think we take that for granted. I mean, the bigger problem, and one which I think legitimately has worried people, is people who, for reasons of disability or things like that, rely on their cars and can't really use public transport. However, of course, those people have to be taken into account. I think in Oxford, for example, blue badge holders you know it doesn't apply to them they've got free reign to carry on using their car and things as it should be that these problems can be ironed out the trouble with this is that certain individuals and these conspiracy theories have taken this planning scheme and uh, bended it into a conspiracy theory where they claim that nobody will be able to go more than 15 minutes from their house now That is patent nonsense. And I worry because I find people laugh at it and almost sort of, oh, God, really? People believe that? Yes, people believe that. 
Yeah, I'll come to that. But just so we're clear about the proposition, yeah. there was a lot of coverage of the protests in Oxford. I know recently in Wanstead, in London, for example, in Birmingham, where I live in a suburb called Kings Heath, there's been a lot of protest about low traffic neighbourhoods, albeit not with this conspiracy theory behind it. The idea is that that 15 minute then would include forms of what's commonly referred to these days as active transport. So might involve a 15-minute walk, a 15-minute cycle ride, a 15-minute bus ride, but would exclude a 15-minute car journey. Exactly, yes. Mm. So, I mean, if something's 15 minutes away from you, you don't really need your car, do you? When I first lived in this area of south-east London, when I was first married and when we had small children, I mean, that's the other thing, if you have small children... It's always tempting to get in the car with them and put them in the baby seat and things. I used to drive a lot all the time, even when the kids were small, you know, you're racing to get out and the kids are like at nursery school or primary school or something. You're racing to get them there on time. The temptation is to leap in the car and drive that short distance. But if we are going to secure this planet for future generations, we need to address climate change, you know, Cities with lower traffic and neighbourhoods with lower traffic are better places to live. So just after Christmas, I went to Berlin for a few days with my son. And central Berlin has all kinds of traffic calming measures. And it was a delight to walk around that city. It was an absolute joy. There was none of the racing traffic that you get even in central London and I know Birmingham well and it's long had this kind of massive traffic issue hasn't it on the ring roads and things just living in an environment with less cars and with less traffic and with less pollution should be a noble ambition for us all it makes the streets safer for our kids it makes the streets safer for us and it reduces pollution these are good things although the city where I live as you say Birmingham It was a city designed around the car. And I think this is true as well of parts of London. So city centres are one thing, but most urban areas are sprawling entities. And I can think of parts of the West Midlands where people are certainly not within 15 minutes walk or easy cycle to important facilities, maybe not even to a secondary school. Actually, the secondary school on the estate where I grew up has been demolished. So there could be a conservative argument. I referenced earlier the Conservative MP who's spoken out against 15-minute cities. But actually, this could fit very easily with the Conservatives' levelling up agenda. You know, this doesn't have to be a Labour v Tory, right v left kind of argument. It could fit very easily with levelling up because many of the more deprived neighbourhoods in urban areas are ones which, if you said, well, yeah, we're going to make it easy for you to get to the library, to the swimming pool, to the school, to have decent shops. That would represent an upgrade. I can think of numerous parts of the West Midlands that would be great if they had things within walking distance. And I'm sure you can imagine great swathes of London that would be improved by this kind of urban development. Yeah, I'm always cautious with these things. With London. I mean, Post-pandemic, I spent a lot of time, partly because I was promoting my book, travelling around the country, mostly by public transport. And the further north you went, I was really, really... I mean, talk about levelling up. The lack of good public transport 
Birmingham's reasonably well served, but you go through the Midlands into the north, the lack of public transport and just getting from one city to another using the train or bus, the obstacles put in your way. I mean, it's a real disparity between the southeast and the rest of the country, which, you know, again, these people have been in power for 13 years. They talk about levelling up. What the hell have they been doing? I think there is a lively debate to be had about whether a 15-minute city is feasible and indeed whether it's ideal. I mean, that's the critical thing. Does it suit every city? Also, one place you've missed out on the list of places where they've talked about this stuff and where there have been protests is Canterbury, another city I know very well because I went to university there. Canterbury is a medieval city, an old walled city, sort of focused around the cathedral. You can walk around the centre of Canterbury very easily in 15 minutes. And Canterbury, again, because it's a medieval city, has long had terrible traffic on its ring road, very similar to Oxford. Canterbury and Oxford are both places where I can imagine these schemes really working if people were willing to use things like park and ride. For some reason, People don't want to park for free and hop on a free bus into a city. They want to drive into the city and park in the multi-storey car park, which costs them more money. We need to have a change in attitude among people and get people to shift how they do things. And, And coming back to London, I think that has been highly effective in this city. People didn't like the ULES zone being brought in, which I live within. People didn't like the congestion charge being brought in. And the first scheme to do all this, the Red Route, people hated it. I mean, there was active campaigning against it. But very quickly after these things were established, people kind of realised that they improved your life. (laughs) <laughs> so it's like seatbelts i remember back in childhood the idea of being forced to wear our seatbelts seemed like some terrible attack on civil liberties but you'd be a complete idiot now not to think that wearing a seatbelt was not a good thing and to the conspiracy theories then because you and i can have this conversation we can have this to and fro and it's no doubt being had over dinner tables and at bus stops up and down the land but To the conspiracy theories then, when did they really start to kick off and who are the people behind them? You know me, Adrian, I'm an omnipresence on that uh, hell site known as Twitter. And I'm interested in conspiracy theories because I think they pose a big threat and I think they will pose a bigger threat as the years post-pandemic go on. Misinformation and more importantly, disinformation are a real problem. So I noticed this stuff popping up. And when I wrote the article, I found references to it going back to October last year. It does go back further than that because the guy who's come up with the modern concept of 15 minute cities, Carlos Marino, he put out a TED talk in 2020 on this. So you could kind of say it's gone back two or three years. But what's worrying as you identified at the top of the um, programme, is that you've got other groups who've come in and somehow kind of found this traffic calming issue as a means of uniting all sorts of slightly disparate groups. And one of those groups, which I quickly noticed, actually, in fact, the moment I started talking about this on Twitter a few weeks ago, I noticed a very strange phenomenon I noticed that certain individuals within the political sphere, many of them associated with the spiked online publication, which, as we both know, came out of living Marxism, which was the house magazine of the Revolutionary Communist Party. I found these accounts buzzing around my Twitter handle 
and liking tweets attacking me. That made me suspicious. And as I started writing the article, I realized that one of the big so-called grassroots groups, many of their signs were at that big Oxford demonstration. It's called Together. So who are Together? Well, you start digging in to who are we, you know, the organizers of this grassroots organization. And almost immediately, you find people who are spiked online authors and former members of the Revolutionary Communist Party. Some of these individuals also were responsible for setting up Nigel Farage's Brexit party. And there is a very real sense that this has become a sort of hub for gathering libertarian groups, climate change deniers, libertarians who want people to keep using their cars in spite of the science, gathering around this movement and gathering around these sites. I think at the Oxford demo, Patriotic Alternative, the racist far-right group, also turned up. But of course, you've also, and this is the worrying bit, you've also got people with genuine, legitimate concerns about these traffic calming measures at the same demos. So you have a kind of strange alliance of what I would call the normals, that's people who are genuinely concerned about the measures, the very far right, the former revolutionary communist party, libertarians, climate change deniers, and our new friends who are almost every single one of these types of demos, anti-vaxxers. Now what the hell has anti-vax got to do with traffic calming? When I've done my own research into this around social media, not just Twitter, but Facebook as well. As you say, there's this linking, quite conscious, deliberate linking of low traffic networks, the 15-minute city, of which that may be one part, then to anti-vax, to climate change denial. And people are being told, perhaps with the use of selective clips from conversations that might have been had at the World Economic Forum, that they're going to be fitted with some kind of carbon tracker, that may be some attempt to measure how much energy they use and how much carbon they use, and that by implication, if they use too much, they will be restricted. And thanks to vaccination, they'll be able to keep track of you. So building this sense, not just of here's a bit of traffic furniture that you might find inconvenient, but this is all part of a wider plot generated by the inverted commas globalists. And so you must fight at this local level because it feeds into this wider narrative. And the normals perhaps will ignore the wider narrative. They might only care about getting their road back open again if they can or their business to have more customers going to it by car but some of those people and this has got to be the fear will then be swept up in these broader conspiracies they have been whilst i was writing the article i have a private facebook account which is locked and it's just my old school friends and that kind of thing somebody i followed on there who's a sort of old left winger you know going back to student days had very much begun to bang on about LTNs and the Oxford traffic scheme. And via that Facebook account, I went down an absolute rabbit hole of accounts it was following of fairly normal people, 
I mean, I don't. There is no such thing as a normal person. We know that. But you know, relatively well educated, probably people who voted remain even like sort of centrist people who have somehow. And I think there's a very strong likelihood that the reason this has really caught on is because of lockdowns. Because we actually had lockdowns, the notion that government or authority might make you stay in your house, your immediate neighbourhood, has a resonance that it wouldn't otherwise have had. So people are willing to believe clearly that the government or local authorities will force people to stay in their homes or in their immediate overall. And... That worries the hell out of me, to be honest. I, I'm not yeah. so bothered about the usual suspects. It's the relatively normal people who seem increasingly to be able to fall for this kind of total nuttery. And again, this is the way conspiracies work, isn't it? People can seize on one thing or two or three things and purport to join the dots between them. So opponents of 15-minute cities, and you reference the usual suspects, these include James Melville, Lawrence Fox, Neil Oliver, GB News regulars. James Melville posted a video showing what he claimed was China, where you can only pass into certain areas of cities if you've got the right QR code. And again, that will resonate with people. People have heard about restrictions on movement in China. People will believe that that is true. And I'm sure there is a degree of truth to that and a surveillance state in China. That is not the same, though, as saying that if you have a low traffic neighbourhood in Oxford or wherever. Absolutely. But it feeds the idea, doesn't it? Yeah, it's such a false equivalence. You know, I really would like to get James Melville to come on either your show or to come on Byline TV, I would love him just to come on so we can actually ask him what the hell he's actually doing and thinking. Because this guy, who was relatively sensible and who was kind of in our orbit three or four years ago, seems to have gone down an absolutely disastrous path of spreading you know, malpriettos and disinformation. You're right, that thing about China, I mean, you know, I go in on James's account and I try in my best possible way to reason with him and say, this is out of context. And what he does, and I, we're all guilty of it, I mean, I do it myself, is he then tries to turn his sort of more rabid followers on me. So I then have hours and hours of having to ignore my Twitter because I've got lunatics basically going after me. But I, I would like to ask James, why he thinks that some lockdown measures in China in an autocratic state are going to be adopted in a democratic nation like Britain, which is trying to deal with climate change. I mean, the idea that the British government in a democracy would force people to stay in their homes is absolute poppycock. It's nonsense. And James is really setting fire to the dry tinder of conspiracy and really fueling this with all those other people that you mentioned. Um, People ask, well, look, you know, why does this really matter? And I'm sure there are people who can point to very real examples in history where conspiracy theories, ideas can really catch root. And I was really taken by the brilliant BBC Sound series, The Coming Storm with Gabriel Gatehouse and 
although that talks about QAnon, which is a modern example of where conspiracy theories can lead, it starts really with the witch trials, with the idea that there are these evil, other, wicked women, which led to hundreds of years of persecution and violence against women who were accused clearly wrongly of being witches and you trace yeah. that up to the modern day you look at QAnon a, a risible theory about a paedophile trafficking gang based at the downstairs in a pizza restaurant that doesn't even have a downstairs yeah, that's my favorite detail they don't even have a basement <laughs> yeah but that leads to January the 6th and leads to the insurrection. So I suppose that's why these things... I mean, yeah, I mean, the treatment of women and witches is a very good resonant example. The Jews, anti-Semitism over a thousand plus years, and anti-Semitism was by no means limited to Germany, which is something people forget. It was rampant across Europe and the world, from Russia to Paris to London for hundreds of years. And the conspiracy theories that led to the rise of the Nazis and to the mass murder of people. And so when I say I am scared, that's the thing that resonates. I mean, again, visiting Berlin over Christmas and seeing how insane, dangerous conspiracy theories can lead to the mass murder and warfare that followed in the 1940s and a war that my own father fought in, that terrifies me. And this is not far off that territory. Now, we're a long way from that end game. But once you start normalising dangerous, dangerous nonsense, you end in the horrors of that kind of the Holocaust. So it has to be dealt with and it has to be dealt with robustly. And Nick Fletcher's strange question to Penny Mordaunt in Westminster a few weeks ago really put the wind up me. I mean, people laughed in the House of Commons chamber, but they should not have been laughing. They should have been saying, what the hell are you talking about? Because he was not just talking about 15-minute cities. He was nudging. It was dangerous stuff. Otto's piece is available now online at bylinetimes.com. Otto English, thank you. I'm Adrian Goldberg. You've been listening to the Byline Times podcast, funded by subscriptions to our brilliant monthly newspaper with which we are both proud to be associated, The Byline Times. Take out a subscription via our website at bylinetimes.com and that'll keep us keeping on doing this podcast. Thanks very much indeed for listening. Thank you to Otto and thank you to Harvey White for his fantastic production assistance with many of these podcasts as well. We'll see you again soon. Cheers now. Bye-bye.